0: Today's passage is from 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. The reading of God's word, you may be seated. Like so many of you who are getting on in years, in age, when I look at the mirror, I see my father's face staring at me. <laughs> you know, when I was young, I, no one said to me that I look like my father, it's quite the opposite. They would say, you don't look anything like your father, your mother. But as I get older, I just see the resemblance more and more. And obviously, the reason is because I bear his DNA, my parents' DNA. I, I have that hereditary gene that says that I look like my parents. I bear the marks that remind me that I am my father and mother's son. Well, my friends, John is telling us here that when we are saved by Jesus and we are brought into the family of God, we bear the birthmarks of being a child of God. Very much in the same way physically we resemble our father and mother, so too spiritually when we are in Christ, when we are brought into the family of God and welcomed as adopted sons and daughters— we also bear the very marks of God. And John tells us in this passage in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, there are three essential marks that are revealed to us, that are on us, that are so visible that show us we are God's children. First, we believe God. It's very obvious, very clear, verse 1. Secondly is that we obey God, verses 2 to 3. And then third is that we overcome the world in verses four to five. Very simple, very straightforward. So we want to look at each one of these birthmarks and ask you, do you bear these marks? What do they look like? First, the first birthmark that reminds us that we are the children of God is that we believe him. Let's read again verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Only when we truly believe, according to verse one, when we truly believe that God has initiated love, that his love is unfailing towards us, are we at all able to love others? We've spent the past few weeks talking about that very idea. You cannot love others truly unless we are first loved by God and understand that we have been loved by God. And then we actually then love the same way that God has loved us. And that's not contradictory and it shouldn't be confusing because it reminds us that he is showing us how both happen concurrently. That is to say, God loves us. He pours out his love upon us. When he does so, we actually then respond in love to him. And then concurrently, we also respond in our love for our brothers and sisters. That's exactly what happens when we are saved, when we are a child of God. But according to verse one, one birthmark that we have that makes this so is that we believe that we are born of God, that he is our father and that he loves us and he will always be with us. John tells us earlier on that he's proven that. Just in case if you don't really think, or perhaps you're shaking in your belief that God really does love you, let's go back to 1 John chapter 4 verses 9 through 10 and look and see and remember what John has said to us about God's love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So right there, John makes it so clear to us that love really for God was one directional, unidirectional. It was God to us. There was no love from us to God. God to us, God had to send his son. When he sent his son, by sending his son, once we trust in him and believe then we're able to respond in love for God. And then we're able to respond in love for other people. When we believe that God's love is unfailing, never ending, everlasting, when it's true and we have no doubt that God loves us that way, even in the midst of real trial and tumult, only then do we really understand God's love. I want to illustrate this with a story from author Randy Alcorn. He tells of the true story of an Armenian earthquake in 1988. It killed 45,000 people. In the chaos, one man made his way, desperately looking because his son was at school. And when he got to the school, all he saw was rubble. He saw a bunch of other parents around stumbling, dazed, weeping, calling out their children's names. But this father ran to the back corner of the building where his son's classroom once was and he started digging with his hands. To everyone else, it seemed hopeless. How could this son have survived? But this father had promised he would always be there for his son. So he started picking up rock by rock, boulder by boulder, rubble by rubble, digging away, calling his son Armand. Well-meaning parents and bystanders tried to pull him out of the rubble. They just said to him, it's too late. You're, they're all dead. There's nothing you can do. Even the fire chief tried to pull, them, pull him away because he said, fires and explosions are happening everywhere. You're in danger. Go home. The police came and said, you're in shock. You're endangering others. Go home. We'll handle it. But the man refused to give up. Hour after hour, eight hours later, then 12 hours later, Then 24 hours later, 36 hours of straight digging and moving. On the 38th hour of digging, a day and a half after everyone told him to give up hope, he called his son's name once more, pulled back a big rock and heard his son's voice. Armand, the father screamed. And from under the rocks came the words, Dad, I told them, I told the other kids that if you were still alive, you'd save me. And the father helped his son and 13 other children climb out of the rubble. When the building had collapsed, they were able to survive in a tent-like pocket. And the father lovingly carried his son home to his mother. When the townspeople praised Armand's father for saving the children, he simply explained, I promise my son, no matter what, I'll be there for you. That's what it means to have a father we believe and trust in. That is a birthmark of a Christian is someone who believes with all of their heart that their father loves them. He will never give up on you, no matter what, because he has an unfailing, perseverant love, and he's proven it by sending his son Jesus, according to 1 John chapter 4. And so we never have to doubt, no matter how bad the situation gets, no matter if we're covered in rubble, we still believe God is faithful. He's our father. He will never let us go. That's what it means to be a child of God. Secondly, is that we obey God according to verses two and three. That's a birthmark that we have. John says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Obeying God proves that we are born of him, that we love him. We cannot say we love God if we do not want to obey his commands. Jesus said the same thing. John must have been listening really well to Jesus when he was talking because what John is repeating here is not something that he came up with. He heard it from the Savior. In John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus said, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. If we love Jesus... We know that he loves us and we want to obey him. We desire to obey him. There's an ocean-wide difference between obedience out of compulsion and an obedience out of love. Obedience out of compulsion is driven by fear and punishment. And we learned just a few weeks ago that that's just not what Christianity is about. That's not what it means to be in relationship to God. From 1 John four eighteen, we know that Christians never obey God out of fear because John says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Obedience that is motivated by fear cannot be sustained. It's not long term. It never lasts. Once the fear is gone, the obedience is gone. That's how it works with obedience from fear. And think of it this way. A parent who implements obedience through fear and anger from physical abuse, and by the way, physical abuse is very different than loving discipline, loving biblical discipline. But the parent who raises their hand in anger, raises uh, some sort of tool in anger and abuses That obedience, while it lasts for a moment, will not last too long. Once the child has grown, is out of the home, they no longer will obey their parent. In the worst cases of abuse, that child, when older, now has power over that abusive parent and can even turn on that parent violently. It's happened, we know, even in the news or you've heard stories We know this from world history, dictators who enforce obedience out of fear of terrible pain and suffering and death and torture. Yes, they get obedience. But what happens when that dictator loses power? What happens is what happened to Saddam Hussein. He builds a big statue. As soon as he loses power, the statue comes crumbling down. Benito Mussolini, the fascist dictator of Italy, Once the American forces came in and the uh, British forces, he was eventually executed by firing squad. And the people of Italy, what they did was they took his body and put it on meat hooks and reviled his body so that all would see what a fool he was. But when he was alive, he enforced obedience and people obeyed. They would even cry and weep when he ordered them to cry and weep. We see that in different countries like North Korea. So fear can lead to obedience, but it's always short-term. It lasts only for a moment. But that's quite different than obedience that is from love. Without our God who began love, we would be stuck. But God loves while we were still sinners. That's the God we obey. We obey a God out of love because he loved us not out of fear of punishment, but he loved us when we were at our worst. We're told this in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. He demonstrates it while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. It's one of the greatest verses of the Bible because it really does give us the picture of what love truly is. It's not a love that loves on the basis of someone who is good and was treating us well but quite the opposite. And though God is truly, we use the word awesome so much that it's a trite word, but for God, it really is the appropriate word. He is awesome. He deserves awe. As we talked about earlier, God is someone we must tremble, we will tremble before because he is fearful. But that fear is very different than the cowering fear of someone who's going to punish us. If we are in Christ, Paul says that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Luke In Luke 13, 34, Jesus says that he's like a hen who gathers his chicks. That is not someone who sounds as though they're holding a hammer over our head, waiting to punish us. He is a God of love. But, of course, we drift from obedience, from love. Not because God has done anything, but because of our own wandering hearts. Maybe you've seen this in your own parenting, if you're parents. When we fail to love, we can so readily resort to obedience from fear as parents and punishment. We can drive that as the means by which our children obey us solely on the basis of punishment alone. But when we do that, that impacts our view of God Our view, uh, our children's view of God. And it impacts our view of our relationship with one another. We can't say to our kids, you better obey me because God demands you. I hope you don't say that. (laughs) You know, sometimes we use God as almost tool or leverage tool over our children. God wants you to obey me, so you better obey me. Because if you don't, you're in big trouble. What a view that our children would have then of God God is this God who is with us only when he wants to punish us because that's what my parents say. Parents, you know how it feels when your spouse demands obedience in anger. And when we think somehow that doesn't impact our obedience to God and our love for him and our love for others, we're sorely mistaken. In this way, we perpetuate a terrible problem. The idea that obedience to God, to his commands, is completely out of fear and punishment rather than out of love. You know, the best captains in the military in a war, they command a company of soldiers. And they are hard. They can be very difficult. When they're training their soldiers, they can be very hard on them. But when they lead the charge, they are right there with their soldiers. Sometimes they're up in front leading the charge, even risking their own lives for the sake of their soldiers, for the sake of those men and women who are under his care. They do that even at the cost of their safety so that their soldiers can prosper, be healthy, succeed in the mission. And when that happens, those soldiers will die for that captain. They will willingly give their life, they will willingly listen to his commands and they will trust him without a doubt because they know that this captain is going to lead the way. He has proven it. He has sacrificed himself. My friends, we have a captain. He has sacrificed himself. He has given everything so that we might live at his sacrifice, at his cost. If we really believe that to be true, then when we hear his commands, we never find them burdensome. It's not that they're easy in terms of sometimes carrying them out, but they're never burdensome. They don't lead us to doubt his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his love. Never. Because we know he has already sacrificed everything. D.A. Carson reminds us that children, people pick up on what matters to us and we can't hide it from them, even if we hide it from ourselves. He says this, it is not just what you do. It is what you are excited about. If I have learned anything in 35 or 40 years of teaching, it is that students don't learn everything I teach them. What they learn is what I'm excited about. The kinds of things I emphasize again and again, and that had better be the gospel. Make sure in your own practice and excitement that what you talk about, think about, exude confidence over. What you are enthusiastic about is Jesus. Don't you find that to be true? When I mean, we teach many things, we talk about many things to our children, to our coworkers, to our spouse, to our friends, a wide variety of subjects. But there are just some things that we are most excited about. My friends, that's what people will remember you for. They will remember Those words. They will remember your passions. And when they think of you, they won't think of the hundreds of topics that you've covered in your life. They will think of the one or two. What is your one of two? If all I talk about is my investments, if all I talk about is college, if all I talk about is my work or going on vacation, well, guess what? That's what everyone will remember you by at the end of your days. Here lies Sam Shen. He loved to talk about college. He loved to talk about his guitar. He loved to talk about drinking water. (laughs) Whatever it is, it could be the most foolish of things, but that's the reality. Or is it here lies Sam Shen? He loved to talk about Jesus because that's what that person exudes by their repetition, by their passion. See, obedience flows from a heart that desires to know Christ, an obedience to Jesus. And it's not based on, I'm afraid he's going to punish me if I don't obey him, but rather because he has done everything to show me love, I desire to obey him. If obeying God, spending time with him, trusting him, living for him, taking steps of faith, being gracious to others, serving others, being kingdom-focused is a burden for you, and you're constantly and consistently excited over other things other than Jesus, then don't ever expect people to listen to you when you say, hey, you should read the Bible more. You should pray more. If my life is not talking about Jesus and it's not exuding an exuberance for knowing Jesus, then if I say to my kids, hey, why don't you read the Bible, but they never see me reading it. They never see my excitement for it. Well, then why should they ever even take that up? Because they know it's actually not that important for me. Whether we realize it or not, your children will mimic you. Just like our physical birthmarks, they have spiritual birthmarks. If your spiritual birthmark is, I love money, I love career advancement, and you might say, I want my kids to follow Jesus more than anything else. But if your actions show, I love work, I love security through my own assets, my own strengths. Do not be surprised when your son or daughter eventually turns away from Christ and says, I don't want to go to church anymore. They go to college and say, they're never going to church. And you're, you're calling them saying, how come you're not going to church? But you've already modeled your whole life of what is most important for your children. You're you're showing you have birthmarks and they have your birthmarks. They look like you. Obedience is never a burden to God as long as we are genuine in our hearts of understanding that he has loved us. Love, and John is just emphasizing this time and time again, if we know that we have been loved deeply, then we desire to obey him, and that shows to everyone whom we encounter and we meet. In this way, obeying God is never burdensome for those who are born of him. Lastly is that those who bear the marks of being a child of God, that third mark is that we are overcomers. We overcome the world according to verses four and five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? There's no mistaking it, according to John. Christians overcome the world. This is the one mark of a true child of God that we have to really dig deep into our souls and recognize that there's reality for us in this. And there's a key word in that verse, verse 4, And it's the very word for, the first word of that verse, for, F-O-R. That word points back to verse three, meaning the reason obeying Jesus' commands are not heavy and burdensome is that we know the end of the story. Jesus has overcome the world, and those who have been born of him have overcome the world. We know who wins. And oh, how blessed it is to know the end of the story. You know we're able to persevere during this lockdown because we have this idea, this notion that somewhere between now and let's say the worst case scenario is anywhere from, as epidemiologists have been saying, 12 to 18 months, virologists, uh, those who are studying in the health profession are saying anywhere from 12 to 18 months. And that's the worst case scenario is that there's going to be a vaccine. But what if there is no vaccine? What if there is no end? What if the disease is actually, what if their curve will never flatten? What if it just keeps on going up and there will never be a vaccine? You know, there's, we still haven't cured cancer. There's always this assumption that, oh, we're going to find a vaccine. I don't want to poo-poo that, but just, keep, just bear with me on this. We haven't cured cancer. There's some treatments for HIV AIDS, but there's no cure for it. You know, there's not even a, a cure for the common cold. Or the flu. We have vaccines that every year someone says, well, you know, you need to get the flu shot. And then you hear right after, oh, it's a different strain. So actually, it's only 20% effective. Or we're always assuming that there's a cure. What if there's no cure, the curve is not flattened, and the lockdown is now an indefinite part of our lives. This is the new normal. We're going to live this way until we die. There's, Can you imagine the despair in our world? What keeps us going? What keeps you going every day is it's going to end. And right now, there are people who are frustrated. We're all frustrated by this. Who Who likes this? We're all waiting the day that we can gather together. But what if, This never changes. They would be despair. You know what keeps at bay despair? Hope. Peter calls it a living hope that we have. You know, the reason why we do not despair is not because we trust in the vaccine in 12 to 18 months, or even hopefully by the end of this year, or even maybe in a few months, there's a miracle cure no, if you wait for that, if that, should, that hope should be dashed, there's only despair. But what verses 4 and 5 give us is a true hope, what Peter calls a living hope. For everyone who has been born, again, uh, born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our trust in him. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Because when Jesus gave his life for us and we were welcomed into his family, the chasm between us and God eternally has been bridged forever. And those who are in Christ and trust in him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John says in John 1 12. place your hope, not in a cure for a virus. Because even if there's no cure, if you believe in verses 4 and 5, even if this is how we are to live for the rest of our days, we would still have hope. George sent me a, a little article, actually a little note, talking about our previous generations. I mean, if you think about what they have been through, those in the United States who lived here in the late 1800s, Maybe it was a great-grandfather or a grandfather. And they went through all sorts of trials. I mean, if you think about they went through World War I. Right after World War I was the Spanish flu that killed 22 million people worldwide. Far more than COVID has done thus far. After that, they went through the Great Depression. That was a worldwide economic depression where people were literally starving to death. With a lot more poverty than ever before, than what we have today. Following that, another terrible war. So the first war killed millions. The second war killed tens of millions with the Holocaust and all sorts of terrible things. Right after that, the Vietnam War. Right after that, the Korean War. And then the wars and the famines. And There's a whole generation of people who are now 80, 90, maybe 100 years old who live through that. And they look at our context and think, here we are living in our home, eating good food, baking, having all sorts of fun activities. I know it's not easy. I'm not minimizing what we're doing. But what if those people, they live through terrible times. Do they only have despair? No, in Christ, according to verses 4 and 5, they still are overcomers. That in Christ, this is only truly but a blip of our eternal lives. And so therefore, when we believe in Jesus, we know that we can overcome every trial, every temptation, every difficulty. That's the promise and power of a child of God. And only children of God truly see things that way. And that's why there's peace and joy, even in the midst of terrible turmoil, sorrows, tragedy, death, suffering. This is why we can tell And how we can tell if we are in Christ that we are his children. That we want to obey him and trust him. Because we know we have overcome the world. We refuse to let the the world connive us and the devil. In Christ we really believe this to be true. And nothing can change that core identity of who we are. Let me close with this. Do you believe you are born of God? Do you bear these birthmarks? I hope you do. It is not too late, but it will be too late one day. One day you will see the Lord and you do not want to face him with the world's marks. Oh, I have this degree. I worked this hard. I cared. I provided for my family. If you go to Jesus one day eternally and you say, I was a good father. I was a good mother. I, pro- I provided for my family. I sacrificed for them will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know what that means. All you need and all you must have is that you bear the marks of Christ's blood covering you. You believe. By believing, you become a child of God. That is your payment. That Christ has paid the price for you. If you don't have that, or if you're a Christian, who perhaps has not really understood their identity and you're still stuck in the mire of all of this, which is possible that you're a son or a daughter, but you have forgotten your identity. It's a terrible thing to be in that place. It's so miserable. Pastor Tony Evans tells the story of, uh, of the time that he has taken his children or his grandchildren to the circus. And he talks about the fact that they would normally see elephants outside in the parking lot as they prepare to go in to entertain the crowd. And one of the things that he noticed is that these huge beasts were being held hostage by a little chain around their ankles. And that chain is chained to a little post. And so he was looking at that and he thought, It's so amazing that this gigantic beast is chained up by this tiny little chain that just with a little move of their foot, they could break free and they could just run away. But this little chain held that beast hostage, this elephant, this animal. An elephant could simply swipe it away. But circus elephants don't do that. And here's why. Because when they were baby elephants, their master, the trainer, taught them that when they felt the chain, they were supposed to submit. They taught them through, obviously, a lot of discipline, punishment even, perhaps. The baby elephants never had an opportunity to understand their identity. So circus elephants are good for entertainment only, Because in the early days, their identity is ripped from them. And that's a lot of us. We're being held hostage. We come to church and we hear about all this power that we have, all of this greatness, but one little chain holds us down. And we wonder what's wrong. How can we, who are in Christ such powerful beings, be held hostage by a little chain that shows up? It's because of your lack of identity. You've forgotten. You don't realize who you are. It's a question of remembering that you are sons and daughters of the king. When you know that, no little chain can stop you. But little chains can hold down even the greatest of sons and daughters because you've forgotten your identity. What is your little chain? Is it money? Is it fear? Is it wealth, security? Is it your job, your marriage, your desire for relationships, friendships? I mean, the list is endless. So many little chains, easy to break free if we just remember who we are, that we are sons and daughters. Oh, I hope you remember that. Let's pray together. Father, we turn to you we remember that you are our father you love us so much you sent your own son you gave us everything so that we might live help us to see o oh god that in christ jesus alone do we have freedom in you do we have hope we just ask o oh lord that you would help us to see if we are in christ jesus that we who are chained up by small little chains, we've forgotten. We've forgotten that we are free. It can't hold us. Never could. But we've lost sight. We've had our identity ripped from us. Help us, O Lord, to remember that Jesus Christ, your own son, paid a heavy price so that we might be set free. And that there is nothing in this world that can keep us locked up. That can cause us despair. Not even if this virus were to go on for decades. Help us, O Lord, to not place our hope in a vaccine. Help us, O Lord, to place our hope in the only God who is eternal, immortal, invisible, who is wise. Help us, O Lord, to bear the marks of sons and daughters that we would do so boldly, that we would obey you and it's never a burden. O Lord, we turn to you. And Father, we also pray for those who have never trusted in the name of Jesus. It is not too late, but it will be one day. May they not go and think that there is something that they will be able to bring to you. It is no different than us trying to pay a heavy debt With monopoly money. We won't be able to do it. Instead we will face the greatest. um, Righteous punishment. That we deserve. Because of our rebellion. But we don't need to be in that place. If we trust and believe Jesus. That you are the Lord. Your blood has been shed for us. So open people's eyes. Would you melt hearts that are stone cold. Due to sin. Due to pride due to arrogance we pray father that you would turn our eyes to you help us to see that you are lord and as we come to this table O oh lord we are so thankful for this physical reminder of all that we have just considered through your word in first john we ask and pray this in jesus name amen